Hello, and welcome to the podcast, An Intelligent Look at Terrorism, episode 19. I'm your host, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada. Today's podcast is topical, I'd like to think, and has to do with some recent events in the Middle East, that area of the world that is constantly in turmoil, it seems to most of us. The particular events to which I refer are the attack on a Saudi oil installation a few weeks ago, which was claimed by a group in Yemen called the Houthis, but which the Saudi regime and their American allies have blamed on Iran. And this particular incident has raised tension, if it's possible to raise tensions any higher in the Middle East, and has led to the possibility of war, although the Trump administration has made it quite clear, as far as we can trust it, that it doesn't want to go to war with Iran. But certainly, things are, are quite in a state in the area. As I noted, it's a, an area of the world where things have been challenging for a great, a great long deal of time. The question I want to pose today, or rather the issue I want to broach today in today's podcast, is who should we really worry about in the Middle East? Is Iran our biggest problem, or is it Saudi Arabia? I want to work through what both states have done over the past couple of decades, what their activities are in the region and abroad beyond that, as well as when push comes to shove, which particular state is more problematic for us in the West, including here in Canada. So let's start with looking at Iran, and I only start with Iran because it, it starts with I, and alphabetically it comes before Saudi Arabia. That Iran has been a state that has caused problems, not just in the region, but internationally, over the past four decades, of course, is known to everyone. Iran put itself on the international map, shall we say, back in 1979 with the revolution that overthrew the Shah's regime. The Shah was a very stalwart ally of the United States and the West in general. And he was replaced by a cast of characters, not just one, as people erroneously believe, but a multifaceted group of actors that wanted to overthrow the regime. But in the end, the one group that held the day and dominated until the present day was in fact a quasi-theocracy led by an Ayatollah, a senior Shia Islamic cleric named Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, and we have, to this day, the Islamic Republic of Iran, led by a figure, originally Ayatollah Khomeini, who died several years ago, known as the, um, the system is known as the Vialat al-Fakih, which is Farsi for the governance of the jurisprudence, which means that a senior religious figure is, in fact, the head of state. Since Khomeini took charge, and in the, in, in the aftermath of his death, the, those that succeeded him, have practiced a quasi-theocratic system of governance. Certainly within Iran, there are many opponents of this system, but the regime does not brook any opposition. A lot of crackdowns, a lot of violence been perpetrated by the state against its own citizens. But more importantly for our conversation is that the Iranian regime has also engaged in activities in its near neighborhood and further abroad that we in the West perceive as inimical to our interests. For example, 
Iran has been the main sponsor behind at least two terrorist groups in the region. Hezbollah, which was formed in Lebanon in the early 1980s, a group that regularly seeks to carry out attacks against Israel, although it's, Hezbollah is much more than that. And Hamas, which is in fact the governing party in the Gaza Strip, also a terrorist group that launches missile attacks and other forms of activity against Israel from its haven in the southern part of the country. Iran has also been supportive of or behind, behind too strong a word, certainly in favor of other types of revolutions around the world. It has cozied up to states such as Venezuela, such as Nicaragua, such as Cuba. And in this, we shouldn't be too surprised because historically, you often find that revolutionary states seek to expand or extend the revolution or aid to other states that are in similar positions. You look at Cuban activity around the world since the Castro regime took over in 1959. You look at, to a lesser extent, what Nicaragua did as well. And this is not a new thing where revolutions start in one area and spread to another. So Iran has been a problematic character, as I mentioned, for quite some time. And its activities are seen as counter to primarily U.S. interests, but by extension, Western interests. Although there has been quite a bit of disagreement in recent years, especially over Iran's nuclear program, whereby there was an agreement with Iran signed several years ago to put a, hand, a, a cap on its nuclear activities, which the Trump administration abandoned, like it abandoned many other things. So there isn't 100% agreement on, on what to do with Iran or how to see them. More recently, one area in which they have been meddling is in Yemen. Yemen, a country in this extreme southwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula, has been at civil war or degrees of civil war off and on since at least the early 1990s, if not before. And as it turns out, one of the parties that is fighting the civil war happens to be a Shia group called the Houthis. And as Iran is a Shia Islamic nation, it sees itself as the champions of Shia worldwide. This is in part why it's, it, it supports Hezbollah, which is a Shia group in southern Lebanon. This is why Iran is very active in Iraq. Iraq is also a largely Shia Muslim country. So Iran sees itself as going to bat for Shia Muslims around the world. And this makes sense historically because Shia Muslims of all Muslims have been perhaps the most repressed and persecuted subsect of Islam since, well, the beginning of Islam in the early 7th century. So Iranian activities in Yemen have pissed off a lot of people. They have led the Saudis and originally their allies, UAE, which has since quit the, the, the Yemen civil war, to intervene. And now we have the attacks on the gas plant a few weeks ago, which the Saudis blame Iran for, although the Houthis themselves made the claim. It's unclear from what I've read whether the Houthis had, in fact, the technical capability to carry out the attacks. So either Iran did it directly or the Houthi attack was, in fact, with Iranian assistance, which for some would be the same thing. Iran was behind the attacks. So we have the calls for protecting Saudi oil infrastructure, of course, Saudi oil being one of the most important sources of oil worldwide. The Americans have been in bed with the Saudis since the 1950s, 1940s, and hence they have promised further troop deployments to Saudi Arabia. They have sold the Saudis tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of armaments over the past 30 to 40 years, although some have noted that 
all this American defense prowess did nothing to stop the attacks on the oil terminal a few weeks ago. Nevertheless, the Americans see the Saudis as an ally in the region, and they're going to stand behind them. So Iran is, is public enemy number one. I'm not so sure I agree with that position. Now, I was an Iranian analyst within the Canadian intelligence community for the better part of 20 years. At one point, I was quite fluent in, in reading Farsi. I think I have a solid understanding of Iranian history and Iranian politics. And while I don't think Iranian is an international good boy, I certainly wouldn't paint them as an always helpful nation state on the world stage. I have long been of the opinion that when it comes to comparing nefarious influence worldwide in terms of support for terrorism, in support for hateful, intolerant, fundamentalist Islam, Saudi Arabia is actually the one we need to worry about. Now, why do I say that? If you go back to first principles, Saudi Arabia, since the middle of the 18th century, although it wasn't a state back then, Saudi Arabia Islam that the Saudis practice is an Islam that is commonly held to or commonly described as being Wahhabi. Now, this again goes back to the middle of the 18th century when there was a very fundamentalist cleric called the Wahhab who saw a lot of things happening in the what was then the, the desert country of Arabia that he didn't like, certain practices that he felt were perverted that had strayed from the original intention of the Prophet Muhammad when he was alive in the 7th century. And so he developed this, this version of Islam, if you will, which is very narrow in an interpretation, which rejects any kind of innovation. They call it bidah in Arabic. They don't like anything that changes. And in effect, want to bring Islam back to its roots in, in the 7th century. That's fine. Saudi Arabia is, is a very conservative kingdom. It's a very fundamentalist kingdom. And who are we as outsiders to dictate to one country how it should rule itself? But it's more than that. What has happened since the 1970s, and this coincides with the great oil shock of the early 70s, whereby the price of oil quadrupled virtually overnight after the 73 Arab-Israeli war, the Arab nations being predominantly Muslim, wanted to punish the United States and its ally Israel for its actions. All this money started flowing in to coffers in the Middle East, and perhaps one of the, the biggest beneficiaries of this increase in the oil price was in fact Saudi Arabia. It's Finances grew exponentially over the next couple of years, decades. And what the Saudi regime decided to do with some of that money was to, in essence, engage in a proselytization program. And so what the Saudis did was they would send clerics, they would send uh, written materials to the four corners of the world, wherever Islam was being preached, wherever it was being shared, with the express intent of influencing the brand of Islam that was being taught. So just to cite one example, you look at what's happening in Indonesia, in Southeast Asia, by the way, the, the world's largest Islamic state, not Islamic state in the sense of governance, but in the sense of a country where Islam is a predominant religion, over 200 million Indonesians are, are Muslims. They've been that way since the, for, for many, many centuries. But historically, the Islam that was practiced in Indonesia was very syncretic. It was very, I would call, moderate. I know that term is controversial. But beginning in the 1980s and 90s, this incredible inflow of Saudi money, Saudi clerics, and Saudi material began to transform the nature of Islam in Indonesia. And I've been reading recently in several online news reports that the Indonesian government is very, very worried about this. 
that they are detecting this intolerant, hateful, rejectionist form of Islam, which is what Wahhabi Islam is at its core, and they don't like it. Where does this intolerant form of Islam come from? Clearly it comes from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is not the only country that one would describe as Wahhabist. Qatar, a small country in the Persian Gulf, is also Wahhabi. But really it's Saudi Arabia that is behind this particular interpretation of how the faith should be preached, how it should be practiced. Well, why does this matter? Well, that matters because the kinds of Islam that are practiced and carried out and used to influence others around the world by terrorist groups has an awful lot in common with the type of Islam that's practiced and which is distributed out of Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not saying that Saudi Arabia itself is a terrorist state. I'm not saying that Saudi Arabia deliberately sponsors terrorism through financing or anything else, although I'm sure a case is to be made that there are individuals in Saudi Arabia that explicitly do support terrorist groups. What I'm maintaining here is that it's the version of Islam that's the problem. So whether you look at Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or Jama'a Islamiyah in Southeast Asia or Al-Shabaab in Somalia or Boko Haram in Nigeria or Lashkar-e Taiba in Pakistan or the Taliban in Afghanistan or whatever Islamist extremist group you, you want to come up with, they all speak different languages, they have different ethnicities, they may have different, slightly different cultural practices based on the area of the world in which they develop, but the one underlying theme that is common to all of them is that they all adhere to this intolerant, Saudi-inspired version of Islam. What you get then is religious justification for acts of violence, of killing people who do not subscribe to the same version of Islam. And there's one thing that a lot of people seem to miss when it comes to understanding terrorism in the 21st century or the 20, in the previous 20th century. The vast majority of victims of Islamist extremist terrorist attacks have not been Americans or Canadians or Western Europeans. Well north of 90% of all victims of terrorism from Islamist extremist groups have been other Muslims. Some of these Muslims have to happen to be Shia. That's an entirely different topic. Most of them are simply Muslims, devout, practicing, good Muslims, whom these groups would see as apostates. They see them as kufar, the Arabic word for apostate. They see them as practicing the wrong form of Islam. This is why in Islamic State, when it held its so-called caliphate in Iraq from 2014 to 2017, you would have religious police walk around and beat people who were doing it wrong, or in worst case, worst case scenarios, would kill them. This is very analogous to what the Saudis do today in Saudi Arabia, although there's been a bit of a let-up in, in, in terms of a religious intolerance and overt punishment of people. You have the Mutawa, the religious police, that would tell people what they could and couldn't do. There's a commonality here. That particular strain of Islam, intolerant, very rejectionist of other points of view, had its genesis in the Arabia of the 18th century. This is why I see Saudi Arabia in terms of its potential impact on violent extremism around the world as a much greater threat than Iran. Some would say, well, you know, the current Saudi kingdom, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is letting up on things. He's letting women drive. He's opening up, colleges opened up to men and women. He's cracking down on what the Mutawa cannot, cannot do in, in, in public. I, 
be, first, be perfectly frank, I see much of this as a ruse. I think the Saudis are still behind this program. So again, I don't want to dismiss that Iran is a, an unhelpful character in the Middle East. What it's doing in Yemen is not necessarily a good thing, but I would also turn that one on its head and say the Saudi support for the other parts of Yemeni government are not good either. It's the, Saudi, it's the Saudis and until recently their Emirati allies that are probably most responsible for the famine that's occurring in Yemen. They are most responsible for attacks on civilians in Yemen. So the, the Saudis don't get a clean slate either when it comes to what's happening in that particular country. When push comes to shove, if you're trying to measure or evaluate the threat from terrorism worldwide, whether it's in the Middle East or North Africa, or Southeast Asia or the West, Western Europe and North America, to me at least, and I've studied this for the better part of 20 years, there's no question that we need to be a lot more worried about Saudi Arabia as a proponent of, as a sponsor of, an ideology that is behind the vast majority of terrorist attacks since 9-11 and even prior to that than Iran is. Yes, I know Iran has been accused of, of sponsoring attacks in Argentina in the 1990s. Clearly, as I said, as a backer of Hezbollah in Hamas, it has to be taken to task. It is involved a lot in Iraq because of the Shia population. It has been a supporter of Bashar al-Assad, the dictator in Syria, for decades. So Iran is not absolutely lily-white when it comes to sponsorship of terrorism. But I defy anyone to show how Iran's theocracy or Iran's interpretation of Islam is getting anywhere near the same attention or the same take-up, if you will, by terrorist actors worldwide, as is the Saudi version of Islam. I see no evidence to support that. I really think that the problem here is Saudi Arabia and not Iran. But what's happened is that, rightly or wrongly, the Saudis have been perceived as an ally of the West. We sell them arms. The Americans have been backing them up for the better part of 70 years. And Iran has been vilified as the, as the bad guy. Now, in many ways, this makes sense. The 79 revolution did overthrow a pro-Western Shah. The American embassy was seized and Americans were taken hostage for well over 400 days from 1979 to 1981. So this is a black mark as far as the Americans are concerned. And I can understand fully, while they'll never forgive Iran for what it did to American reputation and more importantly to American lives American property at the start of the Iranian Revolution. And I think U.S. views of Iran have been colored since that time. You go back to just after 9-11 with the very unfortunate and infamous speech by George W. Bush on the axis of evil. Remember that? The axis of evil? Well, Iran was part of that axis. Here is an attack. Here's a speech made after an attack in which 15 of the 19 perpetrators were Saudi citizens and Iran somehow gets on the axis of evil speech and not Saudi Arabia. It just, it, it defies analysis. It defies common sense that that would be the case. Again, Iran is not something we can ignore, but to simply gloss over the fact that it was Saudi ideology, it was Saudi citizens that carried out the most heinous, massive terrorist attack in history. I don't get it. I, I don't understand how we, you know, almost 20 years later, we can still be looking at Iran 
as you know public enemy number one in terms of terrorism and ignore the fact that Saudi Arabia is still doing exactly what it's been doing for the past 30 to 40 years, i.e. spreading its version of Islam around the world, an Islam that is, from my perspective, and I'm not even Muslim, is unwanted. It is very hateful, and it divides people into us versus them. And yet the Saudis are getting a free pass, even after the crown prince ordered the assassination and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi in Istanbul late last year. There you have it. This is me being as honest as I can. When you look at threats, when you look at where terrorism is going in the, in the, we're coming up now to the third decade of the 21st century, for us to knee-jerk, in a knee-jerk way, look at Iran as the most problematic partner and ignore what's happening in Saudi Arabia, it's just bad analysis. To me, this is intellectual dishonesty. I understand international alliances. I understand that countries back other countries for certain reasons. The geopolitics is complicated. I get that. But if we're looking at it purely from an objective view of what is terrorism, where is it, who's behind it, who's sponsoring it, and which ideology is most problematic, then to me, it's hands down, Saudi ideology is much more of a problem in Iranian ideology. This may change at some point, although I highly doubt it. Iran's under a great deal of pressure right now from sanctions. There's a great amount of unrest, dissent within Iran against the regime. Many citizens have been protesting for changes since shortly after the Revolution 79. So I, I, I have a hard time understanding or even imagining circumstances under which Iranian Shia theology, Shia Islam, will become nearly as, as dangerous on a worldwide scale as has been Wahhabi ideology as practiced and distributed by the Saudis. That's my view. I'd love to hear what you think about this. I'm sure that there are many of you out there that would disagree vehemently with my position on Iran versus Saudi Arabia. Let me know. Pass me some feedback. Make comments. You can certainly get a hold of me in a variety of ways. Email borealisfrisk at gmail.com, on Twitter at borealissaves, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Equally, this podcast will be presented on a variety of platforms. I'll make sure that I send a note out when it is ready. That's the end of podcast number 19. I hope you enjoyed it. Look forward to hearing from you. I'll talk again in a fortnight. Until then, stay safe. It may sound absurd.